this week. It was not Mike Gatlin's fault, it was mine. I had an a, a, a email across my desk earlier in the week. Uh, there's a staff policy we've got here that our staff, you know, if the schools are closed, staff's not expected to be here. They come if they can and so on. And so that was being applied to amen. It went right across my desk. I was in a hurry this week, and I, I let it go, and I realized, like, what did we just do? You know, amen's got a tradition we have to uphold here. Good grief. I think it's a bunch of wusses. You have a little snow and can't get to amen. You know, you guys have these four-by-fours and these huge vehicles. You know, you go, you climb the Matterhorn with these things. You go through eight feet of water, you know. You can't get your bus to Bible study? Come on, give me a break, you know. So, uh Speaking of your rear ends, we, we, don't, want, we don't want anybody uh, hurting themselves, and there are, there are some who have to be especially careful, and so I'm glad if today they've been careful and stayed home. They can get it on, on uh, the website, and don't take it personally what I just said about you. <laughs> but uh, listen, the deal is with amen. It's the same way with our, our policy on Sunday morning. Uh, we'll have church, and we'll have amen, those two things unless the building blows up. So if you hear a loud explosion, we're off. If you see a huge fire coming up from 4055 Poplar, we're not having amen. Otherwise, Harold Ware will be here, and I'll be here. So if we've got electricity, we'll have lights. If not, we'll have Bible study in the dark. And he'll handle the PowerPoint if nobody else is here, and I will teach. And it'll probably one day be Harold and me. <laughs> That's fine. So don't, don't ever question about amen. Just get here if you can. If you can't, we understand. Ha-ha. <laughs> All right. Turn to Galatians 3, and Happy New Year to you. Hope your Christmas was a good one. Mine sure was. And uh, we are back now in Galatians 3. Let me remind you from whence we've come. Uh, the Apostle Paul is arguing with these Galatians who have been influenced by what we call Judaizers. And the Judaizers are trying to combine Judaism with Christianity. They're doing their best to do it. They're saying, oh, we believe in Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But you have to enter the covenant family of Israel by circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, etc., etc., etc. You've got you to basically be, be Jewish ritualistically as a proselyte or a natural Jew. And proselytes were baptized into Judaism before Jesus came along. So Gentiles could come, come into Judaism through some special uh, rigmarole. And these Judaizers are saying that's the way it is. Jesus, uh, you, you have to have him, but you also have to have these rituals, especially circumcision, which marks you out as a child of Abraham, a child of God. Well, Paul was taking this on, as you know, with everything within him. And the first thing he had to deal with was, who's in charge here? Who's got the truth? We're hearing different religious perspectives. Who's got the truth? And Paul simply makes an assertion. He says, I was given this by divine revelation. You don't have to believe it, but this is what happened. I was given the gospel from God directly. When I went back to the other big cheese apostles, Peter and, and Andrew and John, uh, we chatted and we shared and we ended up realizing we had the same gospel. But I didn't get it from them. I got it from the Lord. They got it from the Lord. We came together. We have the same gospel. So don't believe these these Judaizers who say they're bringing to you the Petrine gospel, the, the Peter gospel or the John gospel. And what's this Paul with his gospel? No. Paul says, we had the same gospel, but mine was given to me from God. And therefore, it doesn't matter who gives you another message. It could even be an angel from heaven. Paul says, let him be damned because the gospel I have is from the Lord. And so he argues for his own apostolic authority, which is an argument for the Bible, gentlemen. And we need to be just as rigorous in our own day in understanding the origin of our Bible and defending it, being able to assert it, being able to explain why we believe in it. The Apostle Paul could, under, could explain why he believed in what he was preaching. We need to be able to do the same. That's the reason we're studying Galatians and the rest of the Bible. So Paul in the first two chapters especially is arguing for the uh, authenticity of his message and the authenticity of his office. Then we saw in chapter 2 that he, he comes to the nub of the matter. If you look back in chapter 2, he says uh, in verse 15, we here who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. Now there's, there's the nub of the whole argument on the chief issue he's arguing. Then we saw that following that is a very important theological argument at the very end of chapter 2. And that is that we've died in Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. And we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we live, we live by faith. In other words, Christ is in us, we are in Christ. So that by virtue of union with Christ, the only way that that would make sense is justification by faith. So Paul makes a theological argument explaining it. We saw in the last Thursday before Christmas, in the first five verses of Galatians 3, that Paul makes an experiential argument or a personal argument. And this is not rare for the apostle. Some might think of him as being doctrinaire and not very touchy-feely, but Paul's very touchy-feely and very doctrinaire, both. And in those first five verses, he says, let me tell you, how did you get the Spirit? By performing according to the law? Or did you receive the fullness of the Spirit simply by trusting in Jesus Christ and trusting in the Spirit? Was it by faith that you have the life of the Spirit? Or was it by observance of law that you have the life of the Spirit? So he's arguing from personal experience, his experience and their experience. Now, when we get to verse 6, we turn a little corner here. He's still on the main theme. But now he's making a historical argument, or you could say historical biblical argument. And it runs now for a couple of chapters and has different segments to it. But the main thing he's saying is, this is the way it's always been. The Judaizers were confused from the outset. This wasn't a change that took place when Jesus came, this idea of being justified by faith. This goes back all the way to Father Abraham that they claim they're connecting you to through circumcision. So Paul is going right in the grill of their major argument and saying they got their argument wrong from the beginning, and that's the reason we're at odds with each other. So let me hop over there on their side. Let's talk about Judaism. Let's talk about the Old Testament. And let's see what the Old Testament teaches us. And that's where Paul's going now. And he makes an extended argument. And the reason, of course, is that he's talking to people who are influenced by Jewish arguments, by Old Testament arguments, being made by Old Testament people who are trying to claim that they understand their Old Testament. Paul's saying, no, you never did. And Now, look, this, this is going to get into 14 years of theological study the Apostle Paul had in the wilderness. What we're going to mine now, I think, I don't, I, I don't have this on any authority except just inference. I think we're going to mine what Paul was studying for 14 years because Paul was a Judaistic Pharisee. He was steeped in this stuff. These Judaizers are saying things he would never have said because he would never have included Christ. He was Old Testament Jew to the core. And he became a, a rabid Christian. And he sees the difference between the two. And you can't merge these two things that are contrary. A Judaistic understanding of the Old Testament with a Christian understanding of the Old Testament. You can't put them together. Paul was thinking about this for 14 years. And I think here in this text that we begin today, and in the text that's in Romans, you see the fruit of this massive theological study that he has done that has really been the Christian apologetic for the Old Testament for 2,000 years. It's a great privilege to be reading it and studying it. Let's take a look at it. Chapter 3, verse 6 through verse 14. Hear the word of God. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. 
The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen. Okay, there are three major components of this text I want us to examine. The first one is in these first four verses, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Righteousness has always been obtained by faith alone. He says, consider Abraham. And the first thing he says about Abraham, A, in verse 6, is, Father Abraham was justified by faith alone. He quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This word credited, very important. Credited, reckoned, imputed. There's that accounting word again in this text. And we've talked about imputation before, haven't we, in here? The difference between imputation and infusion. And here he's saying, Abraham believed, and then it was imputed to him. The righteousness of God was imputed to him through faith. He's saying, that's the way it was with Abraham. Now, we all talk about Abraham. Abraham this, Abraham that. And we should. Abraham was a marvelous example of someone who was taken out of paganism. And you look back in Genesis 11 and look at his family. All his family had their names after pagan gods. We studied that in, in Amen some years ago. He was steeped in paganism. And he was called out of that. And believing God's promises that there'd be a land over there somewhere where he had never been, he went at 75 years of age. Amazing man. And indeed the father of our faith in so many ways. So we can extol him. But Paul says, look, even with Abraham, you have anybody you would lift up over Abraham? Even Abraham was considered righteous through faith, not by his works. So he's saying this in clear and uncertain tones. Now let's look at Romans chapter 4. Turn back a few pages. This will be on page uh, 18. 1815. And we'll look at Romans 3 in a few minutes where Paul really gives the heart of this argument. But in Romans 4, he's doing the same thing. Because, of course, if you're trying to convince Jews, you've got, you got, you got to go to Abraham, you've got to go to Moses, and you've got to go to David. And if you can't prove it through those three, you're not going to prove it. Because those are the three kings, if you will, of Israel, Israel's history. And so Paul will regularly go to those three men and make references. Well, here he goes again to Abraham to prove his point. And he says in Romans 4, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? And what is this matter? Well, look back at verse 21 of chapter 3. But now a righteousness of God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you about a righteousness that comes apart from obedience to legal standards. It's a righteousness that comes through faith. This imputed righteousness. And then in verse in chapter 4 he says, well then what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was, here we go again, credited to him as righteousness. He's using the same argument. Now when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, if, if we earned our salvation, let's not call it the gift of salvation. That's hypocrisy. He says, if it's work, it's wages. You get the wage of salvation from all your good work that you earned. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked justifies the wicked. 
justifies the wicked. Can you just hang on that phrase just a moment? God justifies the wicked. Not the righteous. He justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, he's saying there is a reckoning of righteousness that comes from another place. Remember the the phrase alien righteousness. You're wicked. Your righteousness is perfect. How in the world did that happen? It was reckoned to you, just as in Abraham's case. David, here we go again, another kingpin here. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And, of course, David's reference here is kind of in the reverse. Look at this. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never reckon or count against him. David, a little complicated here in this argument about imputation. David's actually saying, blessed is the man who doesn't have his sin reckoned to him. Well, the reason is the sin was reckoned to Christ. So there's double imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ. Christ didn't commit our sins, but he gets credit for them. Thanks a lot. And look what happened to him. From from imputing your performance to him, look what happened to him. But getting his performance imputed to you, look what happens to you. The ascension into heaven gives you a little hint. What happens to someone who has the righteousness of Christ? So there's double imputation. And Paul is using the imputation of sin, in David's case in Psalm 32, to prove his case about the imputation of righteousness in Abraham's case. Move on to verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now he's getting into the argument here. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. In other words, Paul is saying, if our righteousness comes to us by virtue of these covenant signs, like baptism or circumcision or some other ritual, wouldn't you expect that Abraham would have his righteousness after he got circumcised? Wouldn't you? Yes, of course you would. So Paul just asked a simple question. When did this reckoning take place? Before circumcision or after circumcision? And he says it was not after but before. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Real simple argument. Abraham was a wicked pagan. So now you Judaizers are telling me that we have to become religious Jewish people before we can receive righteousness? And you're referring to Abraham? Well, you better check out your little Abrahamic history and see what happened to him. So Paul is saying from the very beginning, Father Abraham was justified by faith alone. Now, uh, before we leave this and go to the next sub-point, if you read the rest of chapter 4, you will see... Paul shows Abraham's faith was a working faith, a fruit-bearing faith, a faith that led to obedience. Let's put it this way, a faith that leads to following the law. And I think sometimes this is where Luther makes his mistake in never making proper qualifications and trashing the law, and it makes one think the law itself is bad, or that law-keeping is bad, or that rituals are bad, or that church traditions are bad. 
Paul's not saying that. He is saying that if you're leaning on that for your acceptance before God, then that's bad. And you've misunderstood the place of the law in your life. If you try to use the law to justify yourself, you're going to kill yourself. We'll get to that in a moment. But that doesn't mean the law is bad. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't keep the law. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't abide by certain church traditions. It's not an argument against traditions. It's an argument against traditionalism. It's not an argument against the law. It's an argument against legalism. And there's a big difference, as you can see, if we would read the rest of chapter 4. So keep that in mind. Paul is targeted with a laser beam on justification, not on sanctification. Now, B, in verses 7 and 9, let's go back to Galatians. We'll come back to Romans in a minute. Going back to Galatians, believers in Christ, his next argument is believers in Christ are children of Abraham. If Abraham was justified in the way that Paul's been teaching, he is saying that in fact then, those who simply believe in Jesus are the children of Abraham. He says, understand then, verse 7, that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now, uh, this is a huge statement. We could take a semester of amen on that verse to understand all the implications of what he just said. This simply means that everything that is in Abraham, everything God intended in Abraham is for him and his children. And you enter into that estate when you trust in Jesus Christ. Jew or not Jew, doesn't matter. That's Paul's argument. It's radical. And people in his day would have wanted to kill him over that. They would be so angry. You're telling me there's nothing special about being Jewish? You're telling me that there's no virtue, no value in being a physical child of Abraham? You're telling me that my fathers and mothers, grandparents, great-grandparents have spent years creating these genealogies to show for sure that they went back to Abraham and every family could show their genealogy? Just, Just check it. When they come back from Babylon... You can't be considered a true citizen of Jerusalem until you have your genealogy and you can show your way all the way back to Abraham. That's what it means to be Jewish. That's what it means to be a child of Abraham and a child of God. That's what it means to have a special blessing in you. That's what it means to be the chosen people. That's what it means to be the elect people. Right? And the people are saying, Paul, you're telling me that means nothing anymore? And Paul says, no, no, no. You can check it in other places. Romans 9, beginning of Romans 9, Romans 2. He says, there's great value in being Jewish. You have the covenants. You have the oracles of God. You have the scriptures. You've been the custodians of this. You have a great history. So he's not trashing that. He says, I'm Jewish myself and I'm grateful for it. But when it comes to justification, yes, I'm telling you, it doesn't help you at all. What helps you is one thing, trusting in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you are then grafted into the family, to use Romans 11 language. You're grafted in like a wild olive shoot, grafted into a cultivated olive tree. And now you're part of that tree, not the one you came from. You're grafted into a new tree and you belong to that tree and that's the olive tree of God, the people of God, the children of Abraham. Now look with me at a few other places in the Scriptures. For example, going back to Romans, look at Romans chapter 2. And you'll see in verses 28 and 29, uh, you know, Paul breaks out with the same sort of thing. This is page 1812. Romans 2.28, he says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Look at that. A man is not a Jew if he only has circumcision and only abides by the external rituals. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Here's what Paul is saying. 
The real circumcision is the new birth. It's being born again. And that, gentlemen, is what circumcision pointed to for 2,000 years. And often the Jews would miss it. They thought the meaning was they were marked out by their circumcision, by this outward sign they belonged to the people of God. They completely forgot what it means. But the prophets in the Old Testament would sometimes arise and preach, circumcise your hearts. That's out of the Old Testament. So from the very beginning, Paul's making his argument, this was always about the heart. And Judaism misses the heart of the matter in Christ. So he's saying it doesn't matter what you are outwardly. It matters what you are inwardly. Turn on over to to Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 6. He's, he's asking now, he's being asked, he's anticipating the objection, well, what about all these promises that God made to Israel? Are they now null and void? And he says, it is not, verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Whoa. He's saying it's never true that every Israelite was an Israelite. So Israel is used in two ways in Romans 9 through 11 the heart, and the external. And you have to know which one he's using. And there's some guesswork. But you get the point here. There's a real Israel, just like we say today, there's a real church, people who really believe in it, and there's those who got baptized and joined the church. And all the church is not the church. And he's saying all Israel is not Israel. Not, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Whoa. Do you remember that when Jesus got stoned and he slipped away? Do you remember why? Because he told them they were not Abraham's children. They were children of the devil. That's why. He questioned their lineage. You know, when you question somebody's lineage, (laughs) you can get stoned too. And that's what Jesus did. Paul's doing the same thing. That's the reason he got stoned. So... They are his, uh, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, he's saying Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac and Ishmael were not both true children of Abraham. Only one of them was. Now, both of them were physically. But he says through Isaac uh, uh, will your offspring be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. You look at that verse 8? But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. So this is a dominant argument in all that Paul has to say. Uh, Now, This is very offensive. I've talked to the rabbis in the past who have asked me what I think on this because they're aware that within conservative Christianity there are many views about the the state of Israel and so on and the meaning of modern-day Israel. And and, uh, the last one I talked to said, now the most offensive position, before I gave my view, he said the most offensive position would, would be that you would think that the church displaces the nation of Israel. And I said, well... Look, here's my view. It's just, it's just the Pauline view. And I think that's, that's the new, that is the Christian view. And I believe it, not because I want to, but not because I made it up or, or I'm inferring. It's just real explicit in the Bible that what the apostles of Jesus Christ were teaching is that those who believe in Jesus Christ inherit all the promises, and those who don't believe in Him are cut off. And I said to the rabbi, I said, do you remember in Isaiah how Isaiah in the, in the Torah, how Isaiah spoke of the terebinth tree being cut off so that only a tenth was left? That was when the judgment of God came during the Assyrian uh, attack. Yeah. That's what Jesus is saying. It's another judgment of Israel and that, uh, that it's cut off out of unbelief. And the unbelief is expressed here classically and fully by the rejection of the Jewish Messiah. So I do believe that. And 
You know, I went back and just made the same arguments. It's very offensive in our own day. It's the argument Paul is making. If you don't want to be offensive, make up some other position. And there are a lot of conservative Christian positions out there that don't agree with this. And I think they're completely wrong for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it just disagrees with what we just read. So Paul is making a radical statement here. He is saying, Father Abraham was justified in the way that I'm telling you. Now, he didn't know about the Messiah. He didn't understand everything about the substitutionary atonement and what would happen on Calvary. But he was justified through his faith. And we are the children of Abraham, not because we have a certain skin tone or a certain history, but because we believe in the Messiah. Now, let me just mention before we go on uh, in these subpoints, let me mention a couple of implications of this view. And they're very important to me. When you understand that you are the new Israel, and as a matter of fact, go back to Galatians now. If you look in chapter 6, you get that very language. Look in Galatians 6, verse 15. At the end of this book, he says, uh, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Anything. It doesn't mean anything. What counts is circumcision of the heart, new creation. That means not only anything, it means everything. So your religious heritage doesn't mean anything in terms of your justification. Your new heart means everything. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. Look at this little turn here. Even to the Israel of God. He's calling us Israel. So what are the advantages of our understanding that we are the Israel of God? We are the circumcised. Here are the advantages as I see them, at least a few of them. First of all, you get your Old Testament back. That's your book. Those are your people. That's your history. And when they're wandering around in the wilderness and acting like a bunch of idiots, well, hello, those are my cousins. Those are my brothers and sisters. That's I wandering around the wilderness. I identify with those people 100%. And when God is faithful to them through all those centuries and puts up with all their ridiculous rebellion, hey, I get that complete. That is I. Those are my people. Those are my fathers and my mothers. And I behave just like them. And look how good God is. So I get my Old Testament back. Every page of it is important to me. Every precept is important to me. Every historical narrative is important to me. It's my book. It's my family history. That's the first thing that happens to you. Secondly, uh, you begin to look at religions very differently, and especially Judaism. And I have some friends, especially the ones I've talked to, that I have great respect for. And they're very helpful citizens. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to build community with my Jewish friends. And the, the Jewish friends I have are very generous, most of them. They're very involved in this community. They make an enormous contribution. And uh, we should continue to build good friendships across religious lines and find those places where we can work together. And we work together beautifully in Memphis. I'm so grateful. We do a lot of good things together, Christians and Jews. And we should continue to do so. We should uh, continue to make good friends there. But let us be really clear about something. In the midst of our very good friendships, let us not muddle the offensive reality that we have a view about God's blessing and eternal life that is unique to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't, you are cut off. If you were once in, you're cut off. If you were never in, you won't get in without faith in Jesus Christ. Let us be very clear about that. Let us not be patronizing and sentimental. Oh, well, he's so sincere. She's so sincere. Well, they're more sincere in their religion than I am. I guess that they'll, they'll go to heaven. If I'm going to heaven, I guess they will too. That is rubbish. You're not going to heaven because you were sincere in your religion. You're not going to heaven because you tried hard. And so since you're going, maybe somebody who tries a little harder than you will will get there too. That's rubbish. You, you, you just simply betray your own misunderstanding of how you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven because you simply put your trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you trusted His taking the sins imputed from you to Him. And that's your only claim. Only claim. 
And that's the only claim that is necessary, and it is necessary to get there. So let's not be sentimental and patronizing toward people that we love. Let's be true neighbors and love them dearly and show them the way and give them every opportunity if they're willing to hear. So Jewish evangelism becomes very important under this view. And then thirdly, I would say this, and then we'll we'll move on. When you understand this view of Israel and New Testament people being engrafted into the real Israel of God by faith and being the children of Abraham, your eschatology becomes very simple. That is, your eschatology just means a study of the end of time. And I don't know, you know, when people try to figure out, well, how are all these Old Testament promises going to be fulfilled and Christians go to heaven, well, that means there must be a reinstatement of the nation of Israel so that all those promises about a new land to Abraham and a great nation and a great name, and it's got to be fulfilled some way. So I guess we'll have to create a thousand-year reign when all that stuff can happen with Jews only while the Christians go up to heaven. And you get this very complex thing called pre-tribulational premillennialism. I'm sorry, but that's where it comes from. It's trying to figure out how you're going to have the Old Testament promises come true to the Jewish people, literally. Well, let me tell you literally how it comes true. Literally, you are the heirs of the promises through faith in Jesus Christ. Literally, you are the heirs of Abraham. And literally, you're going to get the land and the nation and the great name. And literally, it's going to happen physically in your life. When? When the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, Revelation chapter 21, and that's the reason you have that chapter in your Bible. It is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, gentlemen. And those promises are not meant for people who don't believe. They are cut off under the judgment of God. Don't patronize them. And tell them that they still have promises yet to be fulfilled in the Old Testament. They don't. They've cut themselves off from those promises. And all those promises now are given to you. That's the reason Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the, all the promises of God, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. All the promises of God find their amen in Jesus Christ. So everything in the Old Testament devolves upon you through faith in Jesus Christ because you're a child of Abraham. It's just that simple. Now your eschatology becomes very simple. There's going to be a big moment when the Messiah is going to return and He's going to fulfill all the promises to Abraham. Physically, literally, powerfully, gloriously. And who's going to get it? Those who are hanging around over there since 1948 in some land on the other side of the Mediterranean? I don't think so. It's you right here in this land and in that land and that land and that land who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And we're in exile now. We don't have the land. And the new land is going to be redeemed and regenerated. It's going to be perfect. It's not kind of redoing the Old Testament, going back to Israel. We're getting a new perfect land. That's what we're waiting for. That's the grand and glorious hope. That is the hope of the Lord Jesus, the blessed hope of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what it does for you. Get your Old Testament back. You understand true evangelism, and you have a simple, blessed hope. Now, uh, look at verse 8. B1 we are. We're going to have to scramble here. Those children are justified. The Scriptures foresaw. And that just means that God foresaw. Look how, how divine the Scriptures are in Paul's mentality. The Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So it was foreseen that we would be justified in Abraham, the Gentiles. Secondly, notice that they are blessed and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. So here's the gospel given to Abraham. Here's the gospel. Ready? All nations will be blessed through you. There's the gospel. (laughs) There's the good news. All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. So, uh, and you'll find this kind of idea uh, in Ephesians. Uh, Turn just a couple pages over in your Bibles, more than a couple, to, to page 1908. Ephesians 3, 1907. And look how Paul describes the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3, verse 6. This mystery 
of the gospel is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. There's the mystery. Now, the mystery can be described in several ways, but here's one description, that you have the inclusion of these pagan Gentiles coming in to share life, to be the body of Christ together with the Jews from the Old Testament. So, and they are all blessed. We're going to race along here. Look at verses 10 through 12, and let's get the second main point. The first point was that righteousness has always been obtained by faith alone. Secondly, what Paul is saying here is that legal righteousness just doesn't work. It brings a curse. Legal righteousness brings a curse. That is, if, you, if you're seeking to obey the law as your righteousness, you just get damned over it. That's the reason we struggle with our guilt consciences. That's the reason that so much of our life is motivated by a big guilt complex because we are continuing to try to justify ourselves before God and before our own consciences based upon our performance, and it never works. Verse 10, the law demands perfect, universal, perpetual obedience. Anybody up for that? That's what the law demands because what does Paul say in verse 10? Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The law curses and blesses. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to cursing. Which, one, which side are you on? Well, let me tell you. You're on the side of disobedience. All you have to do is read the Sermon on the Mount. When people tell me, you know, my religion really just consists of the Sermon on the Mount. That's all I need. I say, really? Oh, man. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount clobbers me. You're telling me? I can't, not only can I not have an affair with another woman, but I can't even think about it. <laughs> You're telling me, the law is telling me, that's my new standard. I can't ever, if I'm going to heaven, don't ever undress a woman in your mind. Now, if you've ever done that, you're going to hell. Have you ever been so angry with someone you wish they would go away, which is to say you wish they'd just die? Ever? Well, if you haven't ever done that, hey, maybe you'll get into heaven on your own performance. Have you ever wanted something that somebody else had? Ever? Ever dreamed of that? Ever seen a car go by and say, oh, I wish that one were mine? Oh, well, if you ever had that happen, you're going to hell. That's what the law does for you. It damns you. That's what Paul says. You're dealing with fireworks here, gentlemen. So the law demands perfect, universal, perpetual obedience. All you have to do is read the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, some of you yesterday were at Herbert Ray's funeral and uh, if you were there, you know, something that impressed me about Herbert was his military service. And, of course, Herbert was a, you know, incredible thinker, and he, he was a very bright. He was a navigator in the Air Force, and uh, he flo- flew 31 missions over Europe during World War II. He was given the sti- Distinguished Flying Cross with an oak leaf cluster, which means the equivalent of two Distinguished Flying Crosses. And those are not just given out, you know, like Purple Hearts. Uh, those get, are given out to a few men for uh, uh, for extraordinary heroism in the line of duty. And he got two of them. And if you read about World War II uh, and the, the air attacks, the RAF was going in largely at night and bombing regions. The Americans were basically flying during the day because they were trying to hit, and this is before computers, you realize, and, and some of the other things we have now, uh, they were going during the day to hit specific targets, which... I actually like better, even from a just war theory. Well, you go through, during the day, it's a lot more dangerous. And uh, he flew 31 of these things and got through. Now, if, if you read about German defense, during World War II, at their best, there were 39,000 batteries of anti-aircraft. <laughs> Think of that, 39,000 of them in Germany, manned by one million Germans. Anybody want to fly? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> And Herbert got through. And Her- Herbert was always, he, he told me, he's always just so amazed he just survived, you know. And he also had a, uh, I don't know if you, you knew, he had a mid-air collision uh, in training. And he's a navigator. You know, he wasn't flying the thing. But some other plane in training went, you know, did a barrel roll or something and ended up hitting them and cutting off part of their wing. And they ended up landing. He was just amazing to survive. So, you know, it's possible to survive some amazing things. You know, Herbert was one of them. You know, if you saw him at the end of his life, you know, he had this uh, terrible disease, leukemia, that was just putting cancer cells all over his body. You know, I'll never forget one day he came to me and he had just finished one exploit 
And he was looking at me, and he, he looked pale, you know, like he did often the end of his, toward the end of his life. He had half of one ear missing and had cancer surgery all over his face. He says, okay, what's next? <laughs> what do you want me to do next? Yeah, just just amazing, persevering person. But I'm telling you something. What Paul is telling us is even Herbert Ray's not getting through this. You, you can't present yourself to the Lord and say, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. There's no way through. Abraham couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Ruth couldn't do it. Mary couldn't do it. Elizabeth couldn't do it. Are you going to try to do it? Are you an idiot? There is no way through. There's no way. It's like, would you like to swim to UK You know, on your next vacation? You think you can make it. You have more odds of making it successfully on a swim to UK than you do getting into heaven without Jesus Christ and faith in Him. There's no way there. That's what Paul is saying. The law demands perfect, universal, perpetual obedience. You can't get there from here. Secondly, not only is it impossible, which ought to be enough for most knuckleheads, but B, verse 11 and 12, legal righteousness is contrary to faith. Everything about this approach to God is contrary to the main message of the Bible, which is to trust in somebody else because you're a helpless human being. You're pitiful. You're a beggar. You don't have anything to bring. You have nothing to commend you before the Lord unless it's imputed to you. The whole idea of presenting yourself as a law obeyer is contrary to everything the Bible teaches about faith. That's his point here. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. In other words, the law is based on your performance. It's not based on faith. Now, we're going to see... The law is a blessing to us, and keeping the law is important, and there are blessings that come to us in this life through obeying the law. But you don't justify yourself before God based on your law performance. Now, lastly, i got four minutes. Verses 13 and 14. If the law damns us, Christ redeems us. This is the whole point. He says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does the word redeem mean? Here it's an economic word. There are actually two words that are commonly used in Greek for redemption. This is the economic word, agorizo. And it just means to buy something back or to buy it out. It's, you know, uh, my mother collected S&H green stamps. You young guys wouldn't even know what those are. But you go to the grocery store and they give you a whole bunch of stuff. If you buy $10 worth of groceries, they give you, you know, stamps representing $10 purchase. And you go home, put those in your S&H book, and you get enough books together and you can buy a blender. So I can still remember going to, to redeem the stamps. And we go to the S&H Green Stamp Redemption Center. Remember, gentlemen? Old gentlemen, do you remember? S&H Green Stamp Redemption Center. You don't remember, you're not old enough. You know, people shaking their head and they're lying. And, <laughs> but God redeems us from our lives. So we go to the Redemption Center. What do you do? You give your books, and they go through your books. Be sure you've got all the stamps on all the pages. Check your books, be sure they're in order. And then what do you get? You get a blender. So you redeem the blender. So what happens is Christ's blood released us and bought us. It ransomed us. The word ransom might be more accurate here. Christ ransomed us. He purchased us. We belong to him because we were bought by him. As Peter says, we're not bought with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We've been bought. We've been ransomed out of captivity. Now, secondly, notice it is by substitution. It is from the law's curse, that's A, and it is secondly by substitution. He became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's a quote out of the Old Testament. Why was Christ on a cross? You ever thought about that? Was it just because Roman crucifixion was on a cross, the worst penalty possibly could be? given was on a cross. No, that's one reason. The other reason is it was prophesied because in Jewish mentality, if you hung, got hung up on a tree, you were cursed. So the reason for the cross is it's a place of cursing. Now notice that you should have been there and I should have been there. 
but Christ was there in our place. You notice these simple words, for us. He stood in our place. He took the penalty for us. There's something about all the linguistic fields that have to do with atonement. I wish we had time to go through with them. But in every case, you have substitution. Now, what is the meaning of this for us? If Christ stood in our place, let me just mention two implications before we race to the last thing. If He died for us, then that means we owe Him everything. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. That's the first thing. He took it in my place. Secondly, if Jesus took my place as my substitute, I have absolutely no doubt about my redemption. Because the value of Jesus Christ is infinite. And if He stood in my place, it's done. It's accomplished. It's over. It's finished, as He said. It's really finished. There's nothing for me to add except my gratitude. And my law obedience is an expression of gratitude, not an expression of earning. Not wage earning. It's an expression of gratitude. Because it was finished. He stood in my place. What possibly could be left to do if He stood in my place? Wish we had more time there. But see, verse 14. We were redeemed from the Lord's curse by a substitution to receive Abraham's blessing. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come. First of all, to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. That is, the blessing is for the Gentiles. He's saying, don't you see? This is the reason circumcision is ridiculous because it doesn't include Gentiles. And the whole point of this redemption of Christ was to bring in the Gentiles. So that they what? So they get the blessing of the Spirit. The blessing is the Spirit. He goes on to say, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Do you want to know what Pentecost was all about? It was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that he would pour out his Spirit upon us. And Joel expressed it beautifully in Joel chapter 2, and Peter quoted it on the day of Pentecost. That is the down payment of the Abrahamic inheritance. So if you are destined for physical glory in a new land with a great nation and a great name, which is what was promised to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, then what you have now is the first down payment of that inheritance through the gift of the Spirit in your life. And Paul's saying that's the reason that we walk in the Spirit. Because we are the ones who receive the inheritance in Abraham. And we'll get to the Spirit in chapter 5, of course. Gentlemen, it's time to go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this amazing redemption. Thank you for the antiquity of it. That we can look back in the earliest pages of our Bibles and see that you had us in mind from the very beginning. You had Christ in mind from the very beginning. You had eternity in mind from the very beginning. And you have gloriously been working your plan. And we are profoundly grateful for it. Please, Lord, deliver us from every hint of self-righteousness, every hint of thinking that we could somehow earn our justification. And, Lord, enable us today to receive the free gift with all of its fullness, with hearts of gratitude. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, gents.